uh, in the spirit of uh, celebrating 10 years of Compass, um, I will highlight a few key things uh, that Compass Research has addressed over the past 10 years and that we think will be important themes, um, research themes in the future. Uh, now, it's necessarily selective, um, but the themes that I have picked all are all characterized by the fact that there are inherently multi or interdisciplinary issues. I mean, migration, of course, in general is an inherently interdisciplinary issue, but these projects have been addressed from various different angles, and they also speak to very specific policy concerns. Uh, a lot, not all of this project, this work, is uh, addressing policy issues, but many projects are actively trying to engage um, policy questions. So these are the four issues that I'll talk about, draw from uh, my own research, but also from lots of uh, other colleagues' research at Compass. The first question really is, uh, um, who counts as a migrant? And uh, I think a key theme is that the economics and politics of, of definitions. Uh, definitions have a huge impact on, uh, not only on this course, but also on, on impact analysis of immigration. Secondly, I'm going to talk about um, the key theme of variable hiring cues. Um, thirdly, uh, rights, and <coughs> finally, about the effects of immigration in lower-income countries. Now, who's a migrant? Uh, it's a very different project. I have spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, we heard about Bridget's book yesterday, uh, and the Migration Observatory has done a lot of work on how migrants are defined in, in public opinion. Now, this is just a, a chart that shows you the share of migrants um, in the UK labour market and employment. And uh, as you can see, depending on how you define migrant workers, either as foreign-born, foreign nationals, or recent migrants defined here as foreign-born who arrived fewer than five years ago, you get different, different, different numbers. Now, the important point here is that, um, as Bridget points out in, in her book, that definitions matter for for all kinds of reasons, migrants are socially constructed. There's a difference in migrants in data sets, as here, migrants in law, and migrants in, in policy debates. But what I want to highlight is just three examples of how definitions make a real difference in economic analysis as well. Economists are not known for spending a lot of time thinking about definitions. Um, but for example, all studies of the labor market effects of immigration in the UK work with the definition of foreign-born. Uh, people in employment. So, um, so, we, so the question then is, what's the impact of foreign-born people in employment on on UK-born people? Now, that in effect means that you analyze, you also analyze the impact of people who migrated here 50, 60 years ago and who long ago became citizens. Okay? Um, now, of course, a lot of policy concern recently has been much more about recent immigration. The second, so it's important in labor market impact studies. It's usually important in fiscal impact studies um, because, again, how you define a migrant worker in terms of the taxes they pay and the benefits they take out matters hugely in terms of the final result that you get. There's an important temporal dimension to this because fiscal impact studies that are looking forward in terms of trying to assess the impacts of the life cycle make a whole lot of assumptions. But, of course, what happens is that people arrive in a foreign born and then they might become British citizens. So, in a way, they might switch from them to us in terms of the impact study. So, at what point do you stop counting people going forward as migrant versus non-migrant? And finally, um, impact case studies. Most government policies require what's called impact or impact assessments. So, there are civil servants calculating what are the costs and benefits, economic and other, of a particular policy, and with immigration policy changes, impact assessments are particularly difficult because the reference group changes. So if you build a hospital, the impact assessment is more straightforward because the reference group is clear. So it's the impact of the new hospital on the existing population. With immigration, there's huge debate about impact on whom. Do you, do you count the benefits for migrants? Uh, do you focus on the impact on the pre-existing population? And I think um, going forward, I think, in research, as countries become much more diverse, as there's much greater complexity in terms of immigration status, in terms of people switching from one status to another, in terms of naturalization processes, these, the role of definitions and the economics and politics of it is going to be uh, very important. 
Now, the specific research, of course, that Compass has done on this, this, these issues has been on public opinion, uh, because a lot of policy in this country is overtly motivated by public opposition to immigration. This chart, uh, many of you will have seen this, shows you that for a long time, you know, over, well over half of the population have, in one form or another, said that they want fewer migrants. So the critical question, of course, is um, who do people have in mind when they, ask, when they answer questions about immigration? And uh, Migration Observatory, uh, Scott Blinder and, and colleagues have um, carried out surveys that try to probe exactly that question. Of course, so when you ask people in this country, who do you have in mind when you answer questions about immigrants? The, the category that people mention for most frequently, asylum seekers, category that people mention least frequently are students. So this is an inverse proportion to actual numbers coming in. Asylum seekers only constitute about 5% of immigration. Students by far the biggest group. So that you can see how that creates immediate challenges for public policy because you want to respond to public opinion. Um, uh, you might, you know, you might say, oh, we have to reduce asylum seekers, but then numerically very small. Um, but uh, students that are numerically very large tend to be very popular and also, of course, economically beneficial. So I think there's real set of research questions around who people have in mind and who people want to reduce. So there's ongoing research about perceptions of immigration and the relationship with public opinion. Again, Scott has done, um, published a couple of papers that show that there's a statistically significant relationship between who people have in mind and what their views are on immigration. Um, there's an important question about how public opinions related to media uh, portrayals of immigrants. And again, uh, Scott and uh, Will Allen at Immigration Poetry are currently um, running a project that tries to capture how the media deals with migration and how that impacts them on public opinion. I've already spoken to, I think, a very important issue of definitions and kind of economic effects, that is um, impact assessments. And the whole question, when you talk about economic impact, do you focus on GDP, on total output, on GDP per head, or on GDP of the pre-existing population? I think these are very important issues. Now, the second, so this is definitions. The second theme that I want to highlight uh, is that of employer demand for migrant labor. So uh, again, there's been various different uh, research projects involving various different colleagues. Uh, Sarah Spencer, Isabel Schutt, uh, Irandi Chavira, uh, and lots of others have done a lot of work in the care sector, which and I have worked um, on, 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 on the edited volume that kind of looks conceptually as well and what determines the employer demand for migrant workers. And this work has very much been influenced by Roger Waldinger's book in 2003 on what determines recruitment decisions of employers. And, California in low-wage labor markets. And the way the policy question here is, if an employer says they have a demand for migrant workers, how should government respond to that? We hear lots of different sectors, people say they need migrant workers. Government needs to critically evaluate that claim. Are there really shortages, and if so, is immigration uh, the answer? Um, and so I think one of the, building very much on, on Roger's work, is one of the things that we have done is First of all, to see what are the really variable hiring cues in employment in the UK. So that means that do employers have, as Roger says, a cognitive map that includes <coughs> a ranking of different types of workers by either ethnicity or by nationality in terms of their desirability for employment. And I think uh, Bridget and I focused on employment, on sorry, nationality rather than ethnicity, and very much found evidence for that in low-wage labour markets in a wide range of sectors across the UK. Uh, so certainly in the work that I do, um, the Migration Advisory Committee, I talk to employers in low-wage labor markets often, and I rarely come across an employer who would not rank a particular type of migrant well above the British border. <coughs> so employers have clear, so, so in agriculture, there's a clear ranking. The most desirable worker is a non-EU worker, primarily because they're tied through the work permit to the farm, followed by an EU worker and followed by a British worker. And within these categories, you have different subcategories. Um, again, and one of the ways in which we have kind of tried to take this work further is to say, well, how is this variable hiring queue influenced by public policy? And the point that we've been trying to make is that um, employers don't choose between different types of workers in a vacuum. They are operate within particular institutional frameworks, within particular policy frameworks. So it, things like the lack of a training system in the construction sector, so the education system, the training sector the lack of affordable housing in particular areas, the, the, the lack of the recruitment of, of the regulation of recruitment agencies 
the lack of proper enforcement of minimum wage all impact on these, these higher issues, on, on who is the most preferred worker from the employer's point of view. And again, uh, one of the things that we've highlighted as well is that if there is an abundant labor supply um, that's very diverse, employers can become very picky. So in a way, what employers want partly depends on uh, what they think they can get from the available labor supply. And so just to have an example, um, again, this is from the work that I've been doing kind of for government. I mean, there's lots of sectors where employers express a very a preference for a very specific type of worker. Um, so food, proce food processing factories, this is kind of uh, the first one now. Filleting mackerels from frozen, the employer says the only, there's only one kind of work in the whole world that can do that job well. That's a Chinese national trend in Japan. And so this is the worker who is demand, who is the best worker. Uh, horse riding, uh, work riders preparing horses for racing. Again, the employer said uh, there's only one type of worker who I want, and that's a Bangladeshi rider who has been working in Dubai. <laughs> right? um, farmers say we want non-EU workers on who, who are tied to the farm through the work permits. We don't want Romanian civil guarantees anymore because now they are free to go anywhere in the labor market. We need tied workers. Okay, so the policy question then often is how do you respond uh, to that kind of claim? And I think what's interesting, um, what we've highlighted is that there are often kind of system effects, precisely wider public policy um, issues that impact on employers' choices. So, as I said, in the construction sector in the UK, the lack of a training system immediately leads to the Polish worker being top of the line, top of the queue, and the British workers being way below because they're just not trained as well. It's as simple as that. In the social care sector, where, uh, where colleagues at conference have done a lot of work, one of the main reasons for the demand for migrant workers is low pay, which is impacted, uh, which is determined partly by public policy because low pay in this country is publicly funded and privately <coughs> provided. So it's basically local councils contracting out. So part of the reason why wages can't rise is because the council doesn't can't pay more money. So because of chronic <coughs> underinvestment in the care sector, um, wages have been very low, and this has in, in turn fueled demand for migrant workers. We've been trying to point out the larger public policies um, uh, that impact on these hiring queues. And the key point question is, the state very much wants to regulate hiring queues. Of course, the state does not like the fact that the British employers, the British workers often rank number two or three or four or five. The state wants to do things that kind of pushes British workers up the hiring queue because of a perceived imperative to protect British jobs. Um, and I think how that works in practice is quite interesting. A third set of issues that we've highlighted is really the role of rights in research on migration, in social science research on migration in general. And I think a key, a key point here is that um, rights, in a way, have often been discussed mainly kind of from a normative point of view, there's big legal literature, of course. But Rights are rarely discussed as instruments, as the instrumental role of rights, which I think is so important, is rarely discussed. Because what rights migrant workers have in particular countries has huge impact on the effects of migration. So whether or not migrants are tied to specific sectors impacts on their wages. It impacts on the competition with domestic, with, with domestic workers. The extent to which people have access to welfare state impacts on fiscal effects of migration, uh, and so on. So rights, in my view anyway, should be really at the center of analysis, social science analysis of the effects of migration. And in particular, because rights have consequences, nation states use migrant rights restrictions as instruments of immigration policy. Okay? So I think that kind of um, uh, research really is just in its infancy. And kind of my work has, has tried to show that there is a relationship between admission policy and rights, and uh, one of the issues that I've been trying to hide is that for some rights, there are trade-offs. So countries that are more open to admitting migrant workers tend to be more restrictive in terms of some of the rights that are granted, precisely those rights that are perceived to be costly to the states, such as social housing for low-wage migrant workers, low-income support, non-contributory benefits. So I think there's a whole, whole different type of literature uh, and, and emerging research agenda around rights costs and benefits, short run, long run, um, and implications for national interests, and how nation states use rights restrictions as instrument or instrumental policies. Again, uh, I think you could think about varieties of labor immigration policies that include rights centrally. 
sort of don't only look at how open countries are, what type of migrants they admit, but also how, you know, what rights do uh, countries grant migrants. And of course, Scandinavian countries will look very different from the States and from the UK and from <coughs> some Southern European countries. There's some interesting normative questions around trade-offs, of course. And uh, there's then, of course, the flip side of it. There's interesting questions about how immigration states engage with these processes. How do you conceptualize policy making of immigration states? Most of the literature is focused really on immigration. What are the interests of immigration states vis-a-vis -vis some of these issues and what happens in, in practice? Uh, finally, and I'll end with this, I think most of the research really that we, we kind of bring on a daily basis is certainly in economics, uh, but also a lot of politics, is about effects of migration in high-income countries. Anyway, research has mostly been done by researchers in high-income countries and in the context of high-income countries. But I think there's a lot, as we know, a lot of migration from lo one low-income country to another low-income country. A lot of migration is forced migration. So it's a very important question to be asked, what are the effects of that migration and to what extent are our theories, methods, and empirical research findings for high-income countries relevant to analyzing lower-income countries? Well, why might they not be relevant? Well, obviously the capacity of state and the strengths, there might be weaker <coughs> states, bureaucracies might be different, institutions, labor markets, welfare states might all look very differently. That might mean the kinds of tools we have for analyzing immigration in high-income countries might, might not be uh, relevant uh, to looking at issues around immigration development in lower-income countries. And Carlos uh, Vargas Silva is currently uh, looking exactly these issues in the context of migration from uh, between African countries, really doing quite pioneering research, looking at the effects of, of having been a refugee in another country on both um, you know, home countries, but also on um, employment in receiving countries. So I'll, I'll end there, but I think these four themes, kind of definitions, uh, variable hiring cues, rights and effects in low-income countries are going to be themes that in my view are going to be remain important and maybe gain importance as, as we go forward. Thank you. Now we go to... Oh. Thank you. Yes. I will talk a lot about uh, the relationship with labor, the labor market and uh, the welfare state because uh, I uh, work for a kind of thing of the government and uh, one of the issues there is how does uh, labor migration uh, combine with the welfare state, because that is an issue that is very much on the minds of both academia but also on the political uh, uh, arena. Uh, because labor migration in itself is not a, or should not be problematic unless we have uh, and we do have welfare states in our countries. Uh, I was asked to uh, say a little bit about the future and future research and what are the blind spots if you look at research relating to the labor market and uh, the welfare state, because that is my, uh, uh, my area of, uh, of interest. Uh, let me start by saying that the labor market, uh, uh, migra labor migration and the welfare state, in my view, has been hijacked a little by two agendas. And um, I don't want to say that these agendas are not right, but they are too small to look at the challenges that we face in the future. Uh, one is the welfare state hypothesis. That is a well-known thing. You know. uh, Borja's idea that uh, people come to countries just because they are good welfare states has had an enormous impact on the research, but also on the, on the political level. Um, the welfare hypothesis has been studied by economists, by sociologists, and uh, it's still, uh, what I write here, it's still a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. We don't know the answer yet. But research is very much focusing on that, on, on welfare tourism. And seeing the, the welfare state as a uh, pool factor uh, is just one kind of way of looking at the whole debate on the welfare state. And I think it's too small. Um, also, the, this, uh, this, this hypothesis is also uh, very uh, crucial if you look at, for instance, um, textbooks in, um, on the welfare state and uh, labor migration, they all have this one sentence of Freeman. It's obvious that uh, you can't have free migration and the welfare state together. And that is taken as a starting point of most of the books, including my own, actually, because <laughs> the problem is that is uh, something that is capturing. But in my presentation, I will show you that we should move a little bit beyond this kind of uh, 
research and also do other research. The same counts for the fact that, um, in my view, um, a lot of the welfare state research focusing on uh, migration is very much prescriptive and starts by saying that we should have equal rights for migrants. And that means that uh, you, have, you look at the welfare state as it is, and then you look at to what extent migrants can enter uh, the, the rights that the settled people have. That is one way uh, you can look at the welfare state, but I think it's too small, because on the one hand, it's not enough. Uh, for instance, if you have equal rights to social security, which, for instance, a lot of the guest workers had in the Netherlands, okay, you can enter um, the uh, unemployment benefit and all kinds of benefits, but that has not helped most of the um, guest workers in my country captured them, and uh, I would argue that the right to the labor market is just as important as the social security rights. So I think that there's much more to do about uh, broadening uh, the agenda of the uh, research on the labor market and the welfare state. I think we should broaden it uh, by looking at what is going on in the area of labor migration and also what's going on in the area of the welfare state conceptually. Um, first, if you look at labor migration, research always uh, seems to depart from the idea that there's a migrant, this person comes to another country and settles. Therefore, you have to have the same rights. But labor migration, of course, is very, very varied now. I don't, I don't have to tell this audience, I think, about the variety of labor migration. Um, what you can see is that uh, the patterns are very, very different. We have, uh, for instance, in the Netherlands, European labor migration is much bigger than any other migration at the, at the moment, of, including asylum and uh, family reunification. So it has, has a different shape than it had in the past. It's more European. There's also various uh, mobility patterns. People stay, people move on to uh, the UK. Uh, people go back. Uh, different settlement period. And also the level of education is very different. So the welfare state research on migration always had this uh, image <coughs> of what I call Ali and Ahmeds from, uh, from the Rif uh, and the, uh, uh, the Rif area and the Turkish uh, area, at least in my part of the, of the world. And um, this image of the male, uh, low educated or even unskilled person has become the image of the of the migrants, and of course this is no longer true. We also have high uh, educated migrants from India, from all over. And the other difference is that people have transnational ties. So first the image was you come and then you stay and then you break. And of course this is not true. People have lives that are much more transnational than, and they have ties to the other countries. Um, of course it shouldn't be exaggerated. There are also people that settle, but the variety is bigger. And we also know that uh, looking at the pool factors is only one thing of looking at uh, uh, migration. And um, for instance, the, the welfare state uh, magnet theory thinks that you know you only have one pool factor that is the welfare state. And of course, we know already that uh, it's much more complicated, and networks also uh, matter a lot. Uh, on the welfare state, we also know that you cannot look at one welfare state. You have different welfare regimes, and you have to look at the interplay of the labor market and the social security, and also the migration regime. I mean, th this is the kind of uh, uh, image you should have if you look at uh, further research, that these things are, are interreaction. And you can also see that the work of Compass also includes the labor market regime, and I think that is very uh, good, but uh, it's even better if the, uh, it's also the welfare regime that is very, uh, which is very uh, different in different countries. And we also know that European welfare states also vary a lot. There are important typologies on that we have conservative welfare regimes, uh, liberal welfare regimes, social democratic welfare regimes, and of course that is not enough because we also have many developing countries that are also having new kind of welfare states. So also if you have the image that people come here and really want to enjoy their rights, many people also have rights at home or had experiences with welfare states, such as the Polish welfare state. In some ways it's even better than the Dutch. <laughs> so, um, and it's not only in the uh, Europe that
that's one of the things I'm developing. The Turkish, they have a pension system now. The Indians, they have the Central Provident Fund. Um, so the image that um, uh, the welfare state is only here in Europe is something that also is part of the past. And you know, we're looking at the future now. So these are the things that we should take into account if we come to a new kind of uh, agenda on uh, the labor market, uh, labor migration and, uh, and the welfare state. Um, so uh, if we look at this new, new agenda, I think four elements are crucial that research should be done about. Um, I hope that Compass uh, gets a lot of funding for the next 10 years. <laughs> um, but it, this is also something that applies to a fourth my own ideas about uh, what kind of research should be done in, uh, in the Netherlands. And um, I start with the social foundation. What we can see now is that there's a lot of research looking at uh, welfare chauvinism. I don't know if that term is also uh, applicable here in, uh, in the UK. You use it a lot or not? It means that, uh, that you want to have a welfare state, but not for them. <laughs> so it means that you, you, a lot of the people that vote for, for instance, pay, uh, the builders in the Netherlands, but also the Danish party, they have this feeling. You know, we, uh, also the leaders, they stress that the importance of the welfare state, but it's because of the welfare state you want to let people out. We study welfare, uh, chauvinism in welfare state research a lot, and we know a lot. For instance, that if, uh, well, if there are welfare states in countries, people have a buffer to be against uh, migrants that use uh, welfare states. To put it differently, the people in Sweden are much more in favor of inclusion than the ones that in, are in the UK because of the, the poverty of the welfare state. So it's a buffer as well to have, to have a welfare state. But we know a lot about, about this welfare chauvinism. Um, also, for instance, that a lot of people in the Netherlands and in other countries, they want people to be included in the welfare state, um, but not from day one on. They want to have more reciprocity in the system. But I think that uh, even though this research on welfare chauvinism is very crucial, one thing is for, for uh, is, is not there, and that is that but migrants themselves are hardly ever asked what they think about the welfare state. So it's also about, uh, this is also the case because in the Netherlands, and I'm pretty sure this is also in other European countries, we're completely preoccupied with their values towards uh, homosexuality, <coughs> uh, to what extent they uh, want to be part of the Dutch welfare, uh, the Dutch uh, value system, to what extent uh, they feel religious or not. I mean, all the surveys are about whether they are want to assimilate in our country or not. So no more questions about what kind of welfare state they want or how their feelings or feelings of solidarity are for their, uh, it's not asked. And I think that is very important to know more about it. There are, there are people that stating that um, there is a new global elite that doesn't care at all about solidarity. Um, but uh, I did some research on uh, different uh, groups of migrants. I studied the uh, Turkish and Polish low educated and the higher educated Indians and uh, British and uh, other European uh, countries. And what struck me is that I couldn't find them. I could not find this global elite that didn't care at all about uh, others. So um, what I found was that um, uh, the patterns of socialization in their uh, home countries seem to be important because all the Europeans love the welfare state, and especially the higher educated, they see it as a pull factor. So it's not, if you look at Borges, the lower educated that are interested in the welfare state, but the higher educated Europeans, they come to Holland because of the security. And, and, uh, so I think we have to rethink the, uh, what people, people think, and also the level of education is also very important where people come from, because Indian people, for instance, when they come to Holland, they would rather have much more choice. They don't want to have the, all these rights that uh, we're offering them. They want to have choice. And uh, they say, I'm, I'm used to care for myself, so <laughs> let, me, uh, let me continue with caring for ourselves. And, um, but if they are longer in the country, after a couple of years, they start to enjoy it and see it as a kind of uh, safety net as well. So I see there are some services. So a lot of research should be done about that. 
Uh, I have to talk about three other things, and I have only five minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to do this really quickly. Uh, the economic foundation of the welfare state is also <coughs> very important. And I think that today, a lot of focus is on what I call the accountant's approach of looking at the welfare state. So it's a cost-benefit analysis in which uh, you count how much uh, migrants are paying, and then you count how much we pay them for social security and other things. But this is a kind of silly way, because there were silly kind of uh, calculations. I, I know that they're necessary, but the welfare state is very dependent on the economic growth in the country. So to go beyond that accountant's approach is very important. And um, it is very important as well to have a look really closely to what extent it contributes to the welfare states. Because we do believe that a lot of high educated are contributing to the welfare state. But of course, importing high educated migrants into our welfare state is not a good idea either, because we have a lot of high educated people in our country ourselves. So I think a lot of research has <coughs> done more, need to be more clearly about the impact of migration on economic growth. Um, also, uh, it's very important to look more to the working of the welfare state. I was a bit critical about this you know, equal rights of social security approach also because I think it's very crucial for me to look at what the welfare state is doing and uh, I think that the terms meeting and mobility are more important to understand the working of the welfare state because uh, mobility is of course whether people have some kind of upward uh, pattern uh, in their lives but also the generation wise because otherwise frustration will take place and also we don't take enough uh, we don't invest enough in people uh, to get the best out of them, which is not good for the country, but neither for people themselves. Uh, but I also think about that it is a two-sided thing, and uh, it's not only about rights, but also about duties, of course, but also about meeting, in which also the, settled, the settlement countries also have a, another uh, role to play than just getting rights. I mean, you also have to have a meeting, at least in countries like the Netherlands, that is very important to meet at the workplace and to meet in uh, education, because otherwise mobility will not happen as well. That is a statement. <laughs> but, um, so I think that it's very important to have a much more uh, look at the working of the, of the welfare state and also to look at the past, what actually happened. Because having an equal right perspective, looking what happened with the guest workers, for instance, in the Netherlands, Germany, is uh, not, not enough. And in my countries, in my country and also in Denmark, in um, uh, France and Germany, I think we have a kind of guest worker trauma. And uh, one way to, um, for both for the people and also for the, for the society, and I think one of the things is to look at uh, the history and more from a, from a very uh, uh, comprehensive perspective about what, what, what went wrong or how it also, the working of the welfare state is much more complicated with a, with a variety of mobility patterns. It is quite easy to have a welfare state if you think that people come in and they stay, because then, for instance, you can invest in people. You can also uh, look at meeting and mobility in a way that this will help both the people that come and those that are, are there. But if people are much more mobile, now, this whole pattern in which you just invest in people as a kind of solution for the social costs of migration is not, it's not enough because what would you do with people when they move after three months or uh, after two years? You, you do have to think about different kind of setup of your welfare states, I think, in which not everybody is included from, the, from day one. This is my final, final thing, is that um, looking at the welfare state or, uh, and migration also uh, uh, has an impact on how we look at the welfare state geographically. And I think it's very important uh, not to only focus on the national welfare state. I do think that it's very important to have much more comparative research on migration and the welfare state in Europe because our countries have different working. We, it's a kind of different way how they how they deal with the issue, both in the migration regime, the welfare regime, and the labor uh, regime, they differ from, uh, from the UK. Well, Martin has done a lot of good research on that uh, together with our colleagues. But also in Sweden and the Netherlands, we have a very different interplay. That's very useful to look at it. But here, I also want to, to make clear that 
it's very important uh, to look at um, a broader perspective because, for instance, if uh, labor migrants are European and Europeans are moving much more, the question is to what, whether it's time or whether it's necessary to have a much more uh, European um, uh, welfare state and look at what the Europe, on the European level is going on. Also, it's very important to study these new uh, developments in the country of uh, residence. Um, and also look at the international support base people have. For instance, Indian people that come to Holland, they, they work in IT, some would pay still money to the Provident Fund. They will also have a house in India because it's much a better investment there than to buy a house in Holland. I'm sure now. <laughs> Um, sometimes they have international uh, security, uh, they have an insurance, uh, and then there are also uh, personal support systems. So how people uh, go along uh, is very international now, and some of them have uh, much more uh, international contacts than others. But uh, the, the national welfare state is not the only uh, lens we should look at how people are, um, how people are doing. And it's very important to look at the, the support systems, both in the country of origin and the country of residence. So these four um, challenges, very broad issues, made me say that uh, if you look at labor migration, you also have to rethink the welfare state, but also the other way around. I think that also welfare state research can also be very interesting for migration researchers to focus much more on the kind of international support systems and the way the insurances work, especially when people start to become more mobile. Thank you. So uh, I just want to begin by expressing my appreciation to uh, Compass and especially to uh, Martin for inviting me to this uh, conference. Uh, Martin made some very uh, kind uh, remarks about a book that I published uh, early in the millennium, and uh, I suppose if uh, Roger Waltinger wrote that book uh, still existed, he'd be very well qualified to talk about migration and labor market, but uh, for better or worse, I think on a different intellectual inclination over the past uh, 10 years, and that's incarnation of what it will inform what I'm going to say in the next uh, 20 minutes. Now, unbeknownst to the organizers, I believe this conference provides the perfect closing for uh, that project, and much of the time of the past decade has been spent in the debate uh, triggered by the launching of the transnational perspective, a development in which this center, I believe, played a crucial role. Though a conference organized in New York almost 25 years ago provided the initial platform for applying transnational perspective to migration, the formation of a research center on transnational communities here at Oxford provided instant respectability while assembling the type of global network for which the transnational perspective seemed to call. Although the program developed here had a salutary effect on the development of this field, it produced an allergic reaction for me. Uh, as I have a dislike for intellectual fashions and am a lifelong contrarian, and I, it's a habit I can't control, I quickly dissented from what rapidly became uh, the prevailing point of view. However, as time went on, I realized that I actually become seized by the very argument I had sought to critique. In particular, I came to appreciate that the transnational perspective had produced a new way of looking at migration, demonstrating that connections between place of reception and place of origin are an inherent, enduring component of long-distance migrations of the modern world. In turn, that understanding led to a new intellectual stance. Instead of standing with my back at the borders, looking at the, quote, immigrants and the ways in which they became like the people among whom they lived, I came to focus instead on the ties between places of origin and places of destination and the factors that make distant places so often into life. But while I was ready to agree that the transnational perspective had yielded a useful way of seeing, I continued to think that it never went the further step of providing a way of understanding, knowing that migration builds circuits through which people, resources, ideas, and influence subsequently cross borders is a good place to start. But to move further, one needs other tools, those that I've tried to uh, provide in the forthcoming book, The Cross-Border Connection, Immigrants, Immigrants and Their Homelands, to be published this summer, and which I will try to briefly summarize now. Every immigrant is an immigrant, every alien citizen, every foreigner a national. Those dualities lie at the heart of the migration process, leading migrants in constant tension, in searching for the good life, 
often in opposition to the preference of both sending and receiving states. International migrants also pull one society onto the territory of another, generating intersocietal convergence. In propelling them into a different environment, that very same search, however, changes the migrants in fundamental ways, gradually producing intersocietal divergence. But the passage from one stage to another does not entail a process of literally declining homecoming ties, since in the short to medium term, settlement actually increases the migrants' capacity to engage with the people and communities left behind. Now, cross-border ties typically spring from the connected survival strategies pursued both by migrants and their closest relatives at home. Immigration is often undertaken without the goal of immigration, rather relocating to a developed society takes place so that immigrants can gain access to the resources that can only be found there. In turn, those gains get channeled back home in order to stabilize, secure, and improve the options of the kin network remaining in place. Relocation to a richer state yields the potential for enjoying the fruits of its wealth. However, the immigrants are also foreigners, not knowing the ropes, and aliens lacking the full protections granted citizens and therefore encounter risks and uncertainties of myriad sorts. So when trouble strikes, the immigrants often turn to the stay-at-homes for help. As assistance from the latter is often the condition of exit, the immigrants' dependence on the stay-at-homes gives the former all the more reason to attend to the needs of the latter. So these intertwined survival strategies yield exchanges of money, support, information, and ideas. As migrant populations grow, those exchanges broaden and deepen, producing an infrastructure that facilitates and reinforces these bi-directional flows. Reinforcing the strength of these connections is the fact that family migration is often a multi-stage process. Sometimes entire nuclear families move in one fell swoop. Often, however, departures proceed one by one, with a household head leaving first, only later to be followed by spouse and children. Rarely does every significant other change place of residence. Obligations to aging parents at home can keep remitt remittances, letters, phone calls, and visits flowing well after roots in the host country become deeply established. Thus, while no longer in the society of origin, but still of it, the migrants find themselves in a zone of intersocietal convergence, a conceptual space in which home and host societies overlap. But the very logic of the migrants' project then steadily pushes them inwards, away from the outer edge of this zone of intersocietal convergence where they begin. From the start, the immigrants encounter a foreign environment, which of course has to be learned. That imperative yields immediate behavioral changes involving small, almost imperceptible, virtually costless steps, each one of which makes the next advance a bit easier. Over time, as a strange becomes familiar, one steers one's way through the formerly foreign world without thought, using newly acquired skills to demonstrate confidence in ways that bring recognition and reward, and yield exposure to an entirely different mix of people than those known before living home. So transitioning from the outer towards the inner bands of the zone of intersocietal convergence transforms the migrants, making them less like the people behind, left behind, and more like the people among whom they've settled. Changes that in turn yield paradoxical consequences. As the migrants gain greater control over their new environment, learning how to manage it and capture more of the resources found around them, their potential for making a difference back home grows with greater stability. Migrants can also invest in maintaining the connection, whether by traveling home with greater frequency or engaging in activities oriented to the hometown community or even national policy. However, greater capacity also transforms the relationship crossing boundaries. Over time, the initial rough equilibrium between the flows emanating from the new and old home falters as advantage shifts of migrants. Consequently, the migrants gain leverage with resulting power asymmetries affecting their interactions with the state homes. That greater leverage lets them engage in community matters from afar, as exemplified by the role of hometown associations in promoting community development in the place from which the migrants come. Leverage also facilitates migrants' emergence as political actors with the capacity to both help and harm home state interests, giving sending states further incentive to expand their geographic scope, gaining the infrastructural capacity needed to connect with and influence citizens abroad. 
Thus, intersocial convergence gradually gives way to intersocial divergence. As the balance and the duality between immigrant and immigrant shifts from the former to the latter, the migrants find themselves not simply in the society of perception, but increasingly of it as well. Residence in a rich country yields qualitative and as well as quantitative changes, turning the migrants not into new people, then people very different from those who left home. Identity, as the dictionary defines it, means the condition of being the same. But sameness ends once the migrants leave kin, hometown friends, and compatriots behind, which is why their identity is rapidly in flux. Migration engenders a change in the interior of the person, one both entailing and resulting from practical adaptations to a different social structure. As a result, the migrants develop a new set of wants, needs, and expectations that are no longer fully compatible with the ways of life and modes of behavior back home. As a result, those changing orientations generate conflict in the cross-border relationship. Moreover, the locus of the migrants' key connections also tends to shift over time, regardless of the motivation leading any one family or individual to leave home, the core familial network almost always moves gradually or radically and incompletely. Some significant other is usually to be found at home. As the sojourn abroad persists, however, the social center of gravity tends to cross the border, at which point the motivation to keep up cross-border ties falters. The needs of life in the place where the migrant actually lives soak up an increasing share of disposable income, reducing the resources available to remaining relatives at home, even as those ties become increasingly difficult. Distance impinges with particular force on a selective group of immigrants who seek engagement, not just with the core members of the familial network, but with a broader community from which they depart. Wanting to do something good, the immigrant activists find that doing so often proves problematic in part because the complexities of cross-border coordination are difficult, especially for hardworking immigrants with limited technical skills trying to be cross-border citizens in their limited spare time. Cross-border activists may often claim that, quote, the actions are always present, end quote, but delivering on that promise typically exceeds the immigrant's capacity. Instead, these efforts at homeland-oriented civic activity demonstrate how different migrants are from the communities and people to which they are still attached, and how often cross-border civic coordination founders on the shoals of dispersion, distance, and disconnection. In the receiving state, but not of it, the migrants confront a mixture of resources and vulnerabilities, benefiting from the wealth and freedom of the new environment, but never fully free from the risk of rejection or the more devastating threat of the Egypt of the sending state, but not <coughs> in it, the migrants' cross-border activities and engagements promote a deterritorialized vision of the national community extending across state boundaries. Living on foreign ground, the emigrants claim to membership in the national community in the place where they no longer live is contested. The expatriate can easily slip into the ex in which case exit may not be seen as departure, but rather as desertion and disloyalty, sentiments that are widely shared. Further vulnerability lies in the immigrants' presence on the foreign grounds where they actually reside. The claim to identity with stay-at-homes may ring true to some, but definitely not all, as those with in-person contact can readily detect the ways in which the immigrants become unlike those who have stayed behind. For developing states, servicing the needs of citizens abroad entails allocating resources from those who chose to stay to those who chose to exit. However, the latter are too connected in the homeland, too connected to the homeland to be ignored. Building up external state infrastructure to meet immigrants' needs has the advantage of reinforcing loyalties while also reinforcing an activity in which state and immigrant interests converge, namely the sending of remittances. However, states can only do so much for people who reside on the territory of another state, whose nationals already regard foreign origin residents possessing persistent foreign loyalties with suspicion. Now, crossing the territorial boundary takes immigrants outside the home polity, but residents abroad hardly precludes political activity oriented towards the home state. 
However, homeland politics, so it's found everywhere one finds immigration, leaves a massive rank and file immigrants largely indifferent. To begin with, emigration is a form of voting with one's feet against the state of origin and for the state of destination. Post-migration political involvement involved offers few incentives, especially for the many migrants who never engaged before departing. The key impediments derive from the extraterritorial context itself, which lacks a political infrastructure capable of connecting migrants to the homeland polity, quite in contrast to the situation in the new environment. Nonetheless, some fraction of the immigrants, usually small but often too big to be ignored, wants full citizenship rights, and therefore tries to pull the home country polity across boundaries so that it extends to the foreign territories where the departed nationals can be found. As indicated by the growing number of countries that allow for some form of expected voting, cross-territorial polity extension is increasingly common, albeit to a limited degree. For the most part, that phenomenon involves the politics of recognition, not the politics of redistribution, as home states have limited capacity to respond to the number one concerns of their citizens abroad, which have to do with matters of immigration, not emigration. For that reason, the extension of voting rights often entails little more than a costly exercise in symbols, proving of little interest to the rank-and-file immigrants pursuing their search for a better life. Thus, in the end, the very same decisions that produce intersocial convergence eventually yield intersocial divergence. Even though the emigrants insist that they still belong to the we of the country of origin, those who remain behind are rarely of the same opinion. In their view, rather, at heart, these are immigrants who are no longer like us, but rather like the foreign people among whom they live. In fact, the stay-behinds are not entirely mistaken, since the longer the emigrants stay abroad and the more deeply they implant their roots in the soil, the more different they become from those who never left home, which leads a lens of foreign character to the demands that the emigrants direct toward the community of origin. The nationals of the society of reception are willing to tolerate the immigrants' foreign attachment, but only up to a point. The more consistently and visibly the immigrants engage abroad, the more they threaten their acceptance among nationals who see the immigrants as coming from there and consequently not perceived as belonging to us. Thus, scholarship needs to understand the factors that promote and supplant cross-border involvement. That goal requires a departure both from the views of globalists who see immigrants living in two worlds, as well as those of unselfconscious nationalists standing with their backs at the borders. For the most part, the migrants are actually in between, in the country of immigration, but of the country of emigration. Foreigners where they reside, but immigrants whenever they return home. Even if many migrants, and even more so the descendants, drift away from any homeland attachment, that origin remains meaningful to some, and sufficiently so to entail in investment of energy and time. But engagement with the homeland is ultimately shaped by migration and habituation to the expectations and rhythms of a physically separate, economically richer, culturally distinctive place. Consequently, the interactions between migrants and the descendants on one hand, and homeland leaders and everyday people all subject to tensions that coincide with territorial size. 